0: At Sif we're your movie friends. But are friends really friends if you don't know them? So grab a popcorn and head over to our row so we can chat movies. Like friends do.
1: There's always room for more movie friends. So sit back, relax, and
0: enjoy the show.
1: Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Writer's Room. Hello and welcome to Sif Writer's Room. My name is not Aaron, it's in fact Robert. And I'm one of the editors at Sifpop.com. Today's a very special episode because we're probably talking about two or three of the biggest movies that are going to come out all year. And to do that, I wouldn't have chosen any other writers to talk to me about those movies than Sifpop writer Jacob. Hey, what's going on? And Sifpop writer Jeffrey. Hey. Like I said, we're here to talk about some of the biggest releases of July 2023. We're going to be talking about Barbie, Haunted Mansion, Insidious the Red Door, Joyride, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1, and Oppenheimer, and maybe a couple wildcards at the end. There are going to be time codes in the episode description if you want to hear us only talk about certain movies, and we're not going to be discussing any spoilers, so you're safe on that front. Uh, Lastly, we're going to be rating each one of these movies on the classic Sif Pop scale of like it, love it, dislike it, hate it, or it was just okay. So let's get into this just right off the bat. Let's go alphabetically and start with one of if not the biggest movie of the year so far. I am i don't pay attention to box office box office numbers too much, but Barbie, is it the highest grossing movie of the year so far? Is that still Guardians of the Galaxy? I'm not sure, but it's doing pretty well.
0: I know it had the biggest weekend.
1: Right. And Greta Gerwig is smashing a bunch of uh, records for female directors too, so that's awesome. Yeah. Also, um, Jeffrey, let's start with you. Like it, love it, just like it, hate it, just okay
2: uh i think i love this movie and i'm so surprised to say that Mm because i really went into barbie even with all the people saying it was really good and i really like greta gerwig as a director um but i think that it was just one of the biggest surprises for me of the year that i actually enjoyed it as much as i did um so i'm gonna go with love it nice jacob
0: you know i think i'll go with uh loved it as well i Pretty much echo everything Jeffrey said. Like I didn't know what to expect with this movie. I tried to not read anything about it and not really have any expectations going in and I thought it was like really meaningful, but also so much fun. So yeah, I loved it.
1: Well, uh we're gonna start off this episode with maybe not the most uh intriguing conversation if we are all three <laughs> and loved it, but uh I loved it also. Um that shouldn't be a bad thing though, because Good. this movie hey. is just great, right? Yeah. I, I did check while you guys were talking, real quick. Barbie is number three at the worldwide box office. I completely forgot about the Super Mario Bros. movie, which is at mm-hmm. 1.3 billion. And Barbie oh is at 780 million. <laughs> wow. Anyway, uh, let, let's get into this conversation a bit. Uh, the synopsis from IMDb for Barbie, by the way, reads Barbie suffers a crisis that leads her to question her world and her existence. Yeah, off the bat, I was maybe a bit surprised at how similar this was to the Lego movie kind of in its execution. Uh yeah, in that yeah. we're following the main character who is a toy of a brand that we know well and then they kind of interact with the real world in more ways than one. Um, and Will Farrell is the CEO of the <laughs> of the company. Uh I I really like how it interweaves a lot of the themes, including like performative corporations That theme is in a lot of movies these days, but the way that Barbie does it with uh, directly calling out just how they're only, uh, I don't want to use the word woke, so I'll say based. Um, They're only based because of the bottom line. And I think that was really well done in this movie. On top of themes of coming of age, uh, pursuing your dreams, even when they don't conform to typical standards that society would have set apart, uh, and living life for the little things. I just think there's like a lot of stuff going on in this, as well as like you said, Jacob, it's just a whole lot of fun. Oh yeah. I didn't think a Barbie movie would make me think about like being human.
2: <laughs> that was not what I was right. prepared to walk into. It was just more more deep than I could have ever imagined, and I'm surprised until let this even happen. <laughs> like I'm surprised that the toy company was like, yeah, this is good. We'll sign off on that as a movie.
0: I think it even gives them some credibility as a brand, uh, you know, just like they're able to poke fun at themselves. And, um, I mean, obviously they're going to make a lot of money off this movie with merchandising and, you know, the box office and whatever. So it's not like, um, they're not, you know, doing what they want to do as a corporation, but, you know, just to be a little less self-serious and be able to make those meta jokes or approve those meta jokes about themselves. Um, is, is really cool. But yeah, I thought the script was written so well. Just lots of great jokes, like even a few dirty jokes. You, 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 anyone mm-hmm. know, you might say that I wasn't expecting, but found hilarious. I mean, Ryan Gosling, come on. he that's This might be like the best comedic performance of the year, right? Like he, uh, yeah. he nailed it. He's great. And, um, even Margot Robbie too. I shouldn't, I uh, should say her name first really, because she, So the line of being that Barbie character while also landing the humor really well, Mm -hmm. just like, you know, the um, almost self deprecating sort of way she gets into it at a certain point is uh, and the whole cast really, I thought nailed it.
1: I think Margot Robbie, I actually saw this twice. Um, I noticed the second time around that the Barbie character, the Margot Robbie Barbie Barbie character, um, she's really the straight man of the story. Uh, when everyone around her is just utterly ridiculous. Um, there's the mom <laughs> and the daughter, the America Ferreira character and her daughter. They're a little bit more normal, but I think Bar- uh, Margot Robbie does a good job of shouldering that responsibility of being the straight man while also um, bearing all the emotional weight that comes along with the movie, especially in like the scene on the bench when, when they first get out of Barbie land. And then of course, towards the end, She she has a lot and I'm not surprised because I've loved Margot Robbie for a long time now. And um, there was nothing more natural to me uh, for a Greta Gerwig Barbie movie uh, to star Margot Robbie. I just thought it was perfect. And it on both of those fronts, it totally lives up to what it promises. And I think for sure with
2: an actress that wasn't of her quality, this movie would have been a failure. <laughs> like, just absolutely not. It wouldn't have worked. Yeah, and I think point. that she really ties the whole thing together, for sure.
0: The only other version I would have wanted to see was uh, Saoirse Ronan as, as Barbie. You know, that, yeah. Oh, that's I that's just loved to keep that. it all the way in the, in the Gerwig canon, but that's an entirely
2: different movie. I don't think she would fit the stereotype enough for people to sign off on that, but me personally, that, that would have been great. <laughs> yeah. That would have been great.
1: I love her as an actress, and I hope she shows up as the White Witch in the Narnia movies that Gerwig is making. Um, oh. Jacob, you threw out uh, Ryan Gosling, and he hasn't done a comedic performance since The Nice Guys, unless I'm forgetting something. And yeah, is that true? I love The Nice Guys?
0: Wow, me too. He's hilarious right. in that.
1: I I can't think of anything else. We could we could double check, but um, I don't know if he's ever been funnier than this. Like I've been listening to the to his ken songs on spotify i, I have to admit um
0: oh it's great but it's just a, like it's fantastic song. when he goes
1: out onto the dance floor and that first like perfect night when everyone's dancing and he's just making those faces while also dancing impeccably it's man there he he was perfect too just like gerwig and margot robbie um he's one of my favorite comedic performance or uh, performers and i Love it whenever he gets to be funny. It's, it's it's surprising how good he is at
2: comedy as an actor, especially as an actor that's, I mean, he's a distractive guy. I mean, he's, right. he's right. one of those dudes that you don't really expect to be funny. But, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Is It's just so impressive how much range he has. You know, I think of uh, movies like La La Land or First Man, where he um, is, you know, maybe not quite as brooding as he has been, but really puts in those strong, dramatic performances. And then, yeah, can be so broad with a movie like this. And uh, Mm -hmm. yeah, once again, with the Margot Robbie thing, I don't know who else you would put in that role. Like, if you're going to stay with that tone, you know what I mean? Because you have to be able to um, physically do that role and also sort of look the way he does. And I know there was some chatter about him being too old for the part, But, like, you know, come on. We're talking about, like, dolls come to life here. I don't think we need to be too
1: literal. I double-checked, and the funniest thing he's done since The Nice Guys besides this is La La Land, and, you know, that's barely a comedic performance. Because, like you said, he's got the range. He's done the stoic guy so many times, uh, and he's done the romantic lead so many times. Uh, I'm just, like you said, I'm happy to see him continue to do more broad comedy. I also want to shout out Michael Sarah because I've missed him uh, in movies. Okay. I I love Michael Sarah. Um, he's not doing the same exact Juno super bad thing, but he is channeling that awkward energy uh, just for how often yeah. he says, like, don't forget Alan. You know, it's just so great.
0: <laughs> oh,
1: it it's a very effective me. use of his yeah. personality. Oh, 100%.
0: yeah. It reminded me of like an adult George Michael Bluth.
1: He was (laughs) on
2: Barbie land, like he was kind of channeling that.
1: Uh, what else do you guys have? Anything else you wanted to throw out about Barbie?
2: It's too much to really get into with the time that we have allotted, but I think the way it handled talking about gender politics or whatever you want to call it Mm -hmm. was better than anything like all the all the any diatribe that I've seen on, on Twitter or online is perfectly handled in this Barbie movie, which is crazy for me to say. But I think the way that she was able to to weave it all in together and in my opinion, have a actually interesting kind of thesis or thesis slash satire of uh gender dynamics in the modern day, I think it was perfectly done. And I think it's ridiculous <laughs> that uh she was able to pull that off in a movie about a toy.
1: I like that you keep coming back to that idea about how it's a movie about a toy because you're right. Um, It's one of those movies, again, like the Lego movie that shouldn't be as good as it is just because some studio cynically said, let's make a Lego movie. Let's make a Barbie movie. Um, And about what you were saying, it goes on very to the point, very direct rants. I don't know if rant is the right word, but like um, speeches America knows. Ferreira has, yeah. has a speech in the weird Barbie house. And then later on, there are more consecutive speeches to just avoid spoilers. Um, the way that it's so direct, I think, is very effective just because of what Barbie stands for uh, and how it's mm. affected women. Um, and Of course, we, the three of us can't speak to women's issues. Uh, I'll speak for no. you too and say that we can't speak to women's <laughs> issues uh, nearly the problem we should but as an audience member watching the movie I never felt talked down to I never felt like um, it was too blunt or anything like that I think the way like I said I think the way that it just handles almost TED talks or video essays about feminism uh, is just really effective because that is exactly what the movie's about and they need to just go ahead and be direct about it. I think it being a parody really helped to smooth that over. Like it wasn't, you're, you're kind of allowed to
2: get away with those kind of speeches in a, in a comedy that's that broad, I think.
1: Yeah.
0: That does help it a lot. Yeah. And I, th- I think it's telling too, that us three men are saying that we all loved it and mm-hmm. that exactly. we can, you know, accept that message that it's trying to give. And I've heard, you know, some negative feedback about the, the, uh, message of feminism that it's trying to put out, and it's like, you know, maybe if you're taking that negatively, you should uh, maybe reevaluate yourself. I don't know, but um, I yeah, like I agree with everything Jeffrey said. It for what it is for a movie about a toy, a doll, it was right. handled perfectly.
1: I've heard that criticism too from both sides of the aisle. Yeah, I think we can almost just out of hand, dismiss one of those sides. Uh, but the other one kind of says that maybe it's not as sophisticated as, uh, they would like a message like this to be. And that's also where you're working in the limitations of a movie about a toy. Like you, we don't oh, need yeah. this movie to solve feminism. Like this isn't gonna like, this isn't going to fix all of the problems with gender dynamics in the country and in the world. Um, but I think it has important conversations and it says important things um, in the way that it does it. It wears its heart on its sleeve and the way that it does it is effective in my opinion. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, I think that's a good place to leave off the Barbie conversation. Let's move on to Haunted Mansion. A single mom named Gabby hires a tour guide, a psychic, a priest, and a historian to help exercise her newly bought mansion after discovering it is inhabited by ghosts. Based on the ride at Disney World, which I can't claim that I've ever been on, maybe once. Um, I've only been to Disney World one time that I can remember. Uh, Meaning that I was there when I was a child, not that I went to Disney World and forgot. Yeah, I didn't have much history with Haunted Mansion. Because of that, and because of the movie itself, I thought it was maybe okay at best. Uh, Jacob, what did you think about Haunted Mansion?
2: I am gonna say okay as well, yeah, just okay. Jeffrey, it's okay. I look, I just liked it, but there's a lot of parts of it that I did enjoy. But overall, it's like, yeah, nah, <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't feeling it. <laughs> I wasn't feeling it. But there's a lot of stuff I liked it, in it, so I, yeah.
1: Yeah, what did you like in it? Let go for it.
2: I just think it's one of those things where, like, the movie feels very, in my opinion. kind of soulless, like it just feels like it was made because they were like, "Ah, we need some content. (laughs) Let's make a movie about the Haunted Mansion, which we've already done. Um, I I just, the whole thing felt like nobody actually wanted to tell the story. It was just kind of like, here's some money, here's some actors, and we're going to make a Haunted Mansion movie. But uh, all the actors in it are some of my favorite actors. Um, And I liked their performances. I just thought the story was lame. And uh, I think it's crazy how, in my opinion, how good he Stanfield is in this movie for what this movie is. Like, he's too good for it. Like, he was yeah. really good in this movie. And I'm like, man, I wish you could have had this performance in, like, something better.
1: I completely agree that I, I was having more fun than I felt like I had any right to just because of the yeah. performers, because I completely agree with you that Like, I never bought into any of the emotion I never bought into any of the, the ghost house world building, none of that. Um, even the characters themselves just aren't that interesting to me. Um, I I also love Le- Lakeith Stanfield. I think he's a bit underserved in this. Like you said, he has that one speech, that one emotional speech when everyone's around him on the couch and it has a moment of product placement right at the emotional climax of the speech. Um, where he name-drops Baskin-Robbins out of all things. It's just painfully bad in some places, while also, like you said, being buttressed by some really talented comedic performances.
0: That was a really weird moment. It almost feels like formulaic in a way. Like, we've got a really mm-hmm. bad script. Who can we put in this movie to make it automatically likable? Everybody likes Danny DeVito. Yeah. Everybody likes Owen Wilson. Rosario Dawson. she's great. You know, and looking at Stanfield. He's on the rise. And it's yeah. like, I appreciate that. But also it feels like their talent's being wasted. That's, that's the first thing I thought when I sat down with this movie. Like, we really dragged Keith Stanfield into this. And he was great. Yeah. I, I totally agree with you guys. Yeah. But it's like, yeah, I was bored through a lot of it. I, the world building didn't hardly even make sense to me. And like. It didn't yeah. really work for me. Yeah. And, I, you know, if I can give any positives to that element, I thought the graphics were passable. But, you know, if, they, if Disney says, if we're going to make Haunted Mansion a movie, let's expand all this lore out and make it, you know, something that people can tangibly interact with, yeah, that's mm-hmm. kind of cool. I, I thought the Hatbox Ghost was okay, d- despite it being played by Jared Leto.
1: Jared Leto, for some reason, which had... <laughs> Like it could have anybody. Literally any person.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I suppose it was decent voice work. Like, I did, I wouldn't have known it was Jared Leto unless <laughs> right. I had looked it up. Um, unless but, at the
1: opening of the movie, it said, "The Hatbox played by right. Jared Leto,"
0: <laughs> and Jared Leto as the Hatbox. Right. Um, okay. Yeah, but um, like you guys were saying, I think the performances is the only thing. Really holding this up, um, even the kid, uh, what's his name, Travis? Yeah, that was pretty good. No, I didn't have really high expectations going into this, anyways, because it seems like Disney's starting this new trend with just wanting to develop their rides to maybe make some money off of it. Like yeah. Jungle Cruise made decent money, I think. Right? I don't even know. Not so. Sure. Uh, Couldn't tell you. I could
2: <sighs> never saw
0: so it. I haven't seen it either. Yeah. But I could see them <laughs> making that Probably business decision this. of like checking off the list. Obviously, we dated Pirates, yeah. Jungle Cruise. And it's funny, too, how this is coming out exactly 20 years after the first one Haunted hmm. Mansion, 2003.
1: Yeah, you know, wow. it's like oh, it's yeah.
0: Been 20 years. Time to re up Haunted Mansion. Why not? I, I mean, maybe they ran out of rides to adapt, but. Um, <laughs>
2: Yeah, right. like they're just gonna roll it back. It's probably gonna be a Pirates of the Caribbean reboot anytime, uh, any day now, any day I now. I can see
0: I can definitely say that. Um, like you said, Robert, I did find it kind of soulless, but you know that's Disney these days.
1: Yes, very much so. Um, the one name we haven't mentioned so far, by the way, is Tiffany Haddish, and I actually haven't seen most of Tiffany Haddish's comedic performances. I've seen her like in Card Counter in the kitchen and on the count of three. I thought she was great in this there's one scene where she's just in the background where two other characters are having a conversation you can just hear her what I can only assume was uh off the cuff just going on a on a rant about eggs and breakfast and that was funnier to yeah, me and better fun. to me than what was actually the scene was actually about um yeah I, I thought she was really funny throughout the whole movie yeah to me this feels like this was really a test of everybody in
2: the cast ability to improv because Mm -hmm. I mean, whether this is true or not, this whole movie felt like there was barely a script where they just told them like, ah, figure something out or shoot it, say some stuff. And we'll figure stuff out. And it felt like watching like a really talented, uh, improv troupe, but you know, I don't want to watch a movie about improv troupe, but I'm (laughs) watching Haunted Mansion. So. eh.
0: What's the better version of this, right? You build out the lore more, you make it scarier, you actually like give your emotional beats of the story some weight, make them feel important and not like a soap opera. Mm -hmm. Like that scene you mentioned where uh, Ben and Rosario Dawson's character are, you know, looking out the window while they're talking about the the crunchy eggs or whatever. Um, (laughs) And like, you know, talking about her son that felt like a Hallmark movie. What is that even supposed to be? You know? And I feel like, they could have tried to make a better movie, and I don't know. Just a lot of it was misguided.
1: Well, that's because two of the the main two dramatic storylines were used as twists. I think, like the like Keith Stanfield, the movie opens I mean, yeah. with his meet cute, and I was on board with their couple. And then next thing you know, she's dead, which isn't a spoiler because that's literally scene two. Um, yeah
2: straight up and then <laughs> yeah. it's, it's so jarring it's like okay
1: <laughs> it's like oh that was a nice little relationship and then you're right it's jarring and then um Travis's dad he's brought up here and there and then all of a sudden it's a big twist at the end it's like if you addressed these things earlier much earlier in the movie then maybe I would have been invested emotionally and in that crunchy egg scene wouldn't have felt like a Hallmark scene and uh the baskin robbins Name drop wouldn't have felt so egregious. Yeah,
0: that whole thing with Travis's dad was like baffling to me. I'm mm-hmm. at the end when he's speaking out of the portal and stuff. I'm like,
2: what is happening? What why, is wh- happening? Wh- <laughs> how did we get here? <laughs> why are we doing this? What are we doing? Why? Just why? Just why?
1: I think just yeah. why is a good place to put a cap on the
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> on the haunted mansion conversation. Let's move on to insidious the red door. The Lamberts must go deeper into the further than ever before to put their demons to rest once and for all. Um, Jacob didn't get to see this one, which uh, he's probably better off for it. So Jeffrey and I are going to have a brief conversation. Um, Jeffrey, did you like it? Love it? Dislike it? Hate it? Just okay. Uh, I disliked it. Uh,
2: I, I I don't understand what this movie was trying to do. Well, I mean, I do kind of understand what it was trying to do, but I do don't get worked at all it felt like they kind of tried to make it more of a uh, family drama which the first two insidious movies are that but this mm-hmm. the way they handle it in this it was just not interesting to me
1: uh i will agree with you at the dislike it maybe just okay because at the beginning and the end i think work to a certain extent and that's because <laughs> only if i disregard the baggage of the previous movies and don't expect a horror movie because yeah, uh, the family drama real. kind of works for me in this, but that's only maybe 20 minutes out of the total hour 40. And it's obviously what yeah. Patrick Wilson, did, who took over directing duties this time, who was a star of the first two, it seems that's what he's more interested in than the horror stuff. And what I've heard uh, on other podcasts and read is that's kind of the case, and that the studio was like, hey, this isn't scary enough, make it more scary. And you could tell that there, no one was invested in the the scariest stuff in the middle. Like there's a ghost or a ghoul or someone barfing on someone's face. It's like, Oh, I've never seen that in a horror movie before. It's the most trite and rote thing that I've ever seen in a horror movie. And it just, I'm so tired of that sort of thing. Uh, In horror, especially already boring horror franchises. Um, So yeah, I, Really don't have much to say about this. Maybe because I'm not a horror fan in general, but just like the first two, well, the first one specifically was much better than this. Um This one just doesn't know what it wants to be. A random thing to say, but
2: in my opinion, the scariest and serious movie is the third one. That one is real unsettling. Um This, I mean, my main problem with it is just, it's not scary. I mean, you're advertising a horror movie and you walk into it and it's, it's, Nothing in it is even maybe jump a little bit like it was Mm. it was dead on that point to me. And the character, the character work was just not interesting enough for me to overlook the fact that it wasn't scary. So, right.
1: It's nice to see Ty Simpkins, who's now grown up, uh, you know, outside of the nice guys and the early Insidious movies and uh, Iron Man 3. I think he does have some talent because I did like him in The Whale. Um, but he's just kind of relegated to the moody teenager or college student, and it's pretty disappointing. Um, Jacob, did you have anything you were wondering about regarding this? Did you want to ask us about anything?
0: Eh, not really, I'm not the biggest four <laughs> fan, and yeah. I wanted to try to see this. I was, and it just didn't happen. But, um, the most intriguing thing for me was actually Ty Zipkins, uh, because hmm. I was, I didn't really know him from anything but the whale. And um, he was great in that. Fantastic. So, yeah, I mean, it sounds like he was definitely kind of wasted here. And I suppose uh, Patrick Wilson directing this one was interesting to me, too. You know, because he's been such a huge part of this franchise, obviously. And it's it's crazy to me that he's so important to this and The Conjuring. Like, he's become such a... Yeah. a staple in horror movies in this era which is cool um, but
1: <laughs> James Wan horror yeah, movies
0: yeah right um, I feel like if I'd seen this I'd probably say the same things you guys have
2: especially because I'm uh, kind of
0: apathetic to some horror
2: I hate to like be on the side of like studios especially now however uh, this movie should have been scarier they were right and um, I just feel like if you're not interested in horror movie that don't direct a horror movie. i don't understand <laughs> yeah. why he chose to just if that was not his interest like make something else
1: blumhouse is one that i can defend you being on the side of just because it's they have a good track record of putting out solid horror but yeah like you said it doesn't really work here let's move on to joyride follows four asian american friends as they bond and discover the truth of what it means to know and love who you are while they travel through china in search of one of their birth mothers uh, we got we got our first straight comedy here, um, and I think I I liked this one. It's right and liked it. Probably low side, not necessarily high, mm-hmm. but this is really solid. I thought, Jeffrey, what did you think? I liked it.
2: I think it was um, kind of it's one of those that was like you kind of respect it for its audacity in some of the scenes, and then it surprises you with uh, some actual emotional stuff that really works.
1: Mm-hmm. Jacob.
2: Uh yeah, I'll agree with you guys. I'll go with high side. I liked it. Um, this movie surprised me
0: a lot. Um, yeah, just like with Jeffrey said, some of the more outrageous scenes they go for. Um, and being able to land those emotional moments, um, the performances especially I thought were great, and it's really cool to see, um, a, a comedy like this. Out in the world, you know, it felt like for a long time, studios didn't really want to make comedies anymore. You know, we're, we're just kind of living in this yeah, movie world. Yeah. But um, this is, uh, you know, kind of proving us wrong, maybe. So, yeah, High Side, I liked it.
1: Nice. So there, there are four main actors in this. Sherry Cola, Stephanie Su, Sabrina Wu, and Ashley Park. I thought three of them were really good, but unfortunately, I thought Ashley Park wasn't Great at keeping up with the comedy of the other three, um, and I thought the other three were really, really funny. Um, and as the movie goes on, I think Sabrina Wu just gets funnier and funnier. Oh yeah, um, there are a lot of funny bits of that character. So it was kind of jarring for me, maybe not jarring, but kind of just like a little odd for me to see Ashley Park not necessarily keeping up. Um, and I think that's because she is the like the the straight straight woman of the story, you know, when everyone else is ridiculous and she's the straight character. Um, I don't mean to be too negative because I I'm trying to say I really thought the other three were hilarious. Um, And that's mostly where the comedy comes from. Kind of like Haunted Mansion, but better (laughs) in that uh, it lives and dies in the success. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, It lives and dies in the success of its main stars.
0: I think, um the greatest thing about this movie is the cast and just um, showing that not just white people can show up in a broad comedy and be funny. You know what I mean? Like you can take four Asian women and just let them cook and just let them be funny. And maybe you even need somebody like Ashley Park in there to balance like how crazy the other three are going, especially Sabrina and Sherry. So I've, I found that to be like a good addition with Ashley Park personally like, and it even goes into some yeah, of like the theming it. that I won't spoil mm-hmm. of their differences.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, just just such a great um, example of representation, and I, I found that to be um, just just cool to see in a theater.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I will clarify really quick: Sabrina Wu uses they them pronouns, um, mm. and even that in the movie it's not like a look at me type of thing um i think that representation works well on top of it being for asian leads just because there are people that we encounter in the world who are just presented um in a movie and it's not necessarily calling to attention it's like hey there's this uh, and from a studio perspective especially um calling back to the barbie conversation it's not like hey look at us look at how progressive we're being it's just like no, these are the characters that we're telling a story about, and uh, I, I, I like it on that front, too. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. It's representation not to be representation. It's just, it exists um, for its own sake, and it exists um, to
1: represent those <clears> people,
0: but not in a, um, what's the word I'm looking for, like, obviously demonstrative kind of way. You know what I mean? Not in
1: a cynical kind of yeah. way, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. There's no like sense of like self congratulatory nonsense, right. which I find in a lot of studio movies where they're just kind of like, "Look, we have a character who represents like okay, just let them be a person, <laughs> like you know everybody else in the movie." Um, I don't know what to call it. The, the sex scene, the the group <laughs> the sex, sex that was probably that is one of the craziest things I've ever seen in a theater. I mean, I've seen you know some some you know, a lot of movies, a lot of stuff in it. But uh-huh. in a theater, I was like, this is a weird thing to experience as a group. <laughs> At the same time, I thought it was hilarious. But that was insane. That was when I realized the movie was not like, it was doing its own rules. It really did not care.
1: <laughs> right. It it was leaning into the R rating, right? It's um, <laughs> out of all the ways you could get them to not be allowed to go back on the bus. <laughs> that, that was definitely yeah. a choice.
0: Yeah, I think um, the closest comparison um, people would would um, make uh, is Bridesmaids, obviously, just with that sort of raunchy comedy and the, the conceit of um, the the four women um, together. But um, yeah, just to sh- just being able to show that n- anybody can uh, take on that role and really um, be themselves and put a great comedy together is is kind of what I took away from it.
1: Yeah. I would even say it's a little bit better than bridesmaids because bridesmaids almost feels self congratulatory to me just because I like the, the scene in the bathroom where they're all get getting sick or food poisoning or whatever that was that one. That's like, I don't find that funny no matter who it is. Um, I think that's just gross. Um, (laughs) Joyride doesn't really have any of that for me. It's just like, a lot of creative, funny, character-driven stuff. Um, even it's a big payoff at, at the airport—that's uh, that's even a oh, character that beat. That
0: was my favorite part. Yeah, I mean, talk about a great way to write a setup <laughs> payoff, crazy. right? Like, right, yeah. 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 Set that up so perfectly, and then you use it as a plot point. You use it as a way for them to, you know, move on in their journey. And yeah, I thought that was genius. Exactly, it's, just really it's not just shock
1: watch. value, right? It's it's not doing it just for just to do it. It's like, hey, let's put this in here to inform the character uh, and let you know some more just about the story in general. It, it's pretty it, very well done.
2: I would have, I just never expected to actually see that. Like they brought it up, and I was like, oh, it's just a funny <laughs> thing to say. And then when they actually yeah. revealed it, I was like, oh, we're doing this. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
1: The last thing I want to talk about for this, and we've alluded to it a couple of times, is that it really is an, a, like emotional and well done on that level. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You see a lot of movies that are, you know, a lot of comedies are comedy for the first two thirds. And then like, oh, no, we got to throw in the drama. We got to make people care. And this does that. But again, like we said about the jokes, it feels earned. Um, And it feels earned in a way that's unexpected and poignant too. You know, like there's a scene with... I'm not going to spoil it because it was a surprise for me, but there's a cameo from a fairly big name actor who comes in and the conversation Mm, that happens is just... Yeah, it's emotional. It's a little devastating. Um, Yeah, it's all really well done.
2: And devastating to the point where it, it
1: feels like it should... I feel like
2: watching it I should be like this is coming out of nowhere but it, it really works I mean it's so different from the tone of the rest of the movie but it still it still hits
0: yeah I agree I found that moment devastating it's a good word for it I I might have teared up a little bit even like it, it really earns that moment and is uh is surprising you don't you don't see it coming so and and not just that but the entire arc of that character and leading up to that moment and sort of her relationship with um sherry cola's character and and how that works i thought was really well written
1: yeah i agree i just really like seeing comedies like this that are both very funny and emotionally moving like there's some jokes in here that i did find a little overused and a, a little bit um very studio vanilla in in sort in uh, certain ways But again, it's off the strength of the performers that it works. Sabrina Wu specifically, as the movie goes on, they just get funnier and funnier. Yeah, with that, let's move on. We got two huge ones to finish off with here. So I'm glad that we have some time to spend on it if we need to. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Ethan Hunt and his IMF team must track down a dangerous weapon before it falls into the wrong hands. Um. Yeah, what'd you guys think, Jacob? I'm going to go with loved it.
0: Yeah, they delivered again. Uh, this is one of my favorite action franchises. And um, yeah, it was, uh, I had a lot of fun with it. Really fun experience. So I loved it.
1: Jeffrey, you wrote the review for the
2: site for this, right? did. I'm going to go with the same same rating of liked it. Um, I had a, a few issues with it, but overall, it was pretty fun.
1: I I'm gonna land in the same camp as Jacob and say that I loved it. Um, yeah, it's. I, I I went to see this in IMAX. I sat yes. next to someone who smelled like cigarettes the whole time and kept my the hood of my hoodie over my face because I didn't bring a mask because I don't do that anymore. <laughs> mm, uh, but even I? that, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Even that couldn't stop me from loving it. Uh, let's let's get into it. What what's the reason that you guys love it? or in Jeffrey's case, like it.
0: Yeah. I just think they are, you know, batting a thousand with, with the action set pieces, obviously, uh, I especially towards the end. Yes. And, uh, 100%. you know, we all know what the, what the big stunt is and that scene in yeah. particular was, you know, mind blowing, but, um, no, I liked, um, the pacing of this a lot and sort of how they got to that moment. Uh, you know Tom Cruise and Haley Atwell together is a revelation.
2: Mm-hmm. You
0: know, especially uh, the oh yeah, that was really merge together with um, you know them and the car chase scene was fantastic, and uh, you know I, I was gonna say something about the Il- Elsa Fowles character, but I'll I'll wait for negatives. Um, mm. Interesting. Everything leading up to that motorcycle jump, I think was like i said really well paced and just a lot of fun um and i will say this isn't my favorite mission impossible i'd i'd give that to fallout but um this is is right yeah. right under the level and you know there's even some plot mechanics here that don't make a whole lot of sense to me like um and i could still enjoy it you know what i mean like the th- some of the stuff with the uh i'm forgetting what it's even called now the AI thing that the entity. Uh, the entity. entity. entity Thank you. Right. Yeah, I, I wanted to say the Sentinel for some reason, uh, but I was close. That's better name. <laughs> the Sentinel. Um, yeah, the, some of <laughs> no, no, no. the stuff with that, the world building they're they're doing, and the stuff with Gabriel, I was kind of like, huh. But this, you know, that that didn't even matter to me. I'm just like, I'm having a great time. Like, and and that's. Not easy to do, I feel. So that's kind of where I landed with it, generally.
1: So you said exactly what I want to say. It's like there's all there are some things that don't really make much sense. Um, and But I think that's okay. Just because everything else is so well done. Really well directed. Really, really tense. I said I saw it in a suboptimal situation because of my company. But uh, <laughs> I still... Don't know if I if I'd been more gripped by any movie this year than the scene after the nightclub scene. Like, I, I don't move to the edge of my seat very often in movie theaters, but I was actually on the edge of my seat. Uh, it yeah. it's so done, uh, so well done, so intense, so awesome. I like how it goes back to the original Mission Impossible movie and how that is barely an action movie and it's. Uh, a spy thriller with a couple action sequences or a couple, like even the, the repelling scene down to the secret room is an action sequence. Um, It goes back to that feeling of it being a spy thriller with, you know, who's on whose side, who is this person? What are their motivations? All this kind of stuff. But at the same time, it mixes that in with the action that the franchise has become. And, Doing that, like we said, it doesn't completely work on like a narrative or thematic level, but the attempt that it attempts it, uh, I give it points for that, and uh, I <laughs> I enjoy it a little bit more because of that.
2: Yeah, I think in this franchise there are two types of movies. There's like the Mission Impossible films that lean more on the spy stuff, and the Mission Impossible films that lean more on the action stuff. I think I'm more of a fan of the action, which is why with this one where they got a little bit more talky, I was kind of like, all right, <laughs> it's a little much. And I think even there's a there's a scene where Benji says something along the lines of, uh, we don't really need to go into the details, just tends to get in the way. And I was like, well, I yeah. feel like you should have followed that advice the whole movie, is <laughs> 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 my opinion. I don't know. It was a little. I feel like there's a lot of uh, exposition dumps in this movie that, in my opinion, were kind of unnecessary and said a lot to say little, and it happened multiple times. And I found it a little bit
1: annoying. But well, here's the thing for me with that because I'm glad you brought up that point. The famous movie that recently did that was Tenet, where they say, "Don't un- don't try to understand it, just feel it," right? And oh, I didn't understand it or feel it. Uh, (laughs) but in dead reckoning part one I did feel it even though there were some parts that I didn't understand because I think the action filmmaking is there as well as there being great character dynamics um where Tej and Roman in the fast and furious movies just kind of get annoying at this point and they're just kind of boring and do the same thing over and over as much as I used to love them in the earlier movies Benji and Luther uh their little dynamic with the Ethan main character, I think that still works and still finds ways to be fresh. So, because there are those three characters, on top of having Ilsa, on top of having uh, Haley Atwell's character Grace, um, there's enough there character wise for me to be able to say the details don't matter, um, and still say that I love the movie.
0: Yeah, I I, uh, I definitely agree with that, and. Maybe yeah. This is it, it's interesting that you compare it to Tenet because it's like it's almost doing the Tenet thing right. You know, you're mm-hmm. grounding it in even this might sound crazy to say, but you're grounding your action in reality, even though it's not quite sure. realistic to, you know, uh, land a mo- motorcycle on a train. Um, <laughs> but he he yeah, really parachute. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It help. help. but that's um. That's what really grounds a lot of the action is that you're going into these movies knowing how much work Tom Cruise has done to prepare for those stunts and the, you know what he's willing to do to make the movie seem realistic, even though it's like he's doing some of the most fantastical, death-defying things that have, you know, stunts that have ever been uh, done for a movie. So, And then in Tanned, it's like... You know, what if we make the cars go backwards? What if we... I don't even know. Like, do some Inception stuff with these buildings. That's fun. And I appreciate appreciate Nolan's craft, but if you don't know why any of that stuff is happening, it doesn't really matter. Right. That's a, that's how right. I felt with Tenet. Just a really good example of the, the right way to do action, I think, with these. Sure. Yes, I can agree
2: that the that as, as much as, in my opinion, it has the same problem as Tenet, but nowhere near as bad.
1: On top of everything that we've said, it's also very entertaining and just like a slapstick and comedy type of way. Like we mentioned the oh, yes. Fiat chase through Rome, just like how they have to keep switching sides because they have the handcuffs on and the steering wheel comes off and all this different stuff. It's Tom Cruise has cited like uh, Chaplin and Buster Keaton in the past, and this feels like Sherlock Jr. Or stuff like that. It's yeah. It's just so much fun that he brings in those types of references. Um and it's also funny to me that at the beginning it says a Tom Cruise production, like how many actors have that sort of pull when they're producing the movie? Um Real. it really is a Tom Cruise production. So just the way that yeah. it's fun on top of being intense, I love that also.
2: And like I said in my review, that car chase puts every like, the past three Fast and Furious movies to shame, because it's like, <laughs> I feel like I'm actually um, watching a cool car-, car chase. I don't feel like I'm watching a bunch of CGI hot wheels run into each other and explode. Like, it felt visceral. Like, it felt real. It was great. Oh, yeah, and you've got to imagine
0: they made that sequence as practical as possible. Mm-hmm. You know, just because of the way uh, Tom wants those movies made. And it, uh, yeah, if you, if you do compare that to the Fast and Furious movies who are Trying to do the same thing, right? We're intense, yeah. we're cool, we're fast.
2: Really? Yeah.
0: And we're we're going to maybe throw in some comedy. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, like I said, just, just a better way to do it than, than really any other action movie right now.
1: Yeah, last month I talked to Jack and Chris and we were discussing Indiana Jones and The Dial of Destiny. And I was talking about how I thought the action in that was borderline terrible. And just as soon as I saw Mission Impossible, it was going to be absolutely put to shame because there's a a chase in Dial of Destiny when they're on that cart, scooter thing, whatever, that I thought was just really, really bad and just the most boring way to do a a chase through the streets. Meanwhile, here we have Dead Reckoning, and we've seen thousands of car chases through streets and movies before, and this still somehow finds a way to be fresh and new and exciting Um, and there's no other franchise that you can count on to do that, except for maybe John Wick. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You guys both mentioned a couple negatives. Uh, Jacob, you mentioned something about Ilsa, so I'm curious what what your negative is there.
0: Well, now that I think about it, I don't want to spoil anything about mm-hmm. what, what that character arc is for Ilsa. I'll just say the way it works out in this movie and sort of based on her entire storyline from... When did she first show up? Ghost Protocol? Uh, Rogue Nation. Rogue Nation. Rogue Nation. Um, Yeah. was just a little dissatisfying to me. I don't know. I mean, these movies have had problems with uh, Ethan Hunt's female companions. (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. And it was just... uh, I found it to be a little... Misguided um but I won't be specific with it uh, spoiler wise mm-hmm.
2: yeah I didn't like it really it rubbed me the wrong way for a lot of reasons <laughs> but i I didn't like it
1: I don't the way it ended up here since it since it sounds like both of you have thoughts on the character arc of Ilsa we'll do spoilers at the end for this movie um and we can get a little bit more into depth in depth on that yeah and sounds I cool. will throw that into the episode description, too, and we'll make sure to warn people who are listening because I went ahead and lied at the beginning of this episode saying that there were not going to be spoilers. Um, but that's fine. <laughs> um, it's a good one to So, spoil. yeah, we'll get... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so the only other question I have with this to stimulate some conversation, maybe I'll save that for spoilers, too. Let's also discuss part ones when we get to spoilers because this is two months in a row that we have big movies that are dubbed or not part ones, but are part ones in execution. Correct. So I want to know what you guys think about that, but we'll get, get to that. So there's a little bit of a tease for the rest of our conversation. Um, is there anything else you guys want to get to non-spoiler wise for Mission Possible? Uh, I just like the, the way that even though this
2: franchise doesn't have a lot of it doesn't have a lot of connective tissue. I mean, every every movie is kind of a new adventure, but I do like how they've been able to track from the first movie and all the way into this one how Ethan Hunt has a huge problem with uh, letting people die, and um, that is something that I think was always present in this series. But I think with the McQuarrie movies, they've kind of pushed it more to the forefront of like he lost everybody that he had in the first movie. And now he's spending, like, every other movie just being, like, nobody can die. And um, I like that in this movie, that is very directly challenged as opposed to just hinted at. Like, the the, the villains are very much, like, you're going to have to figure out, you know, they're not going to get all this unscathed, uh, for sure. And I like that they pushed them that far.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I For the first few Mission Impossible movies... Like you said, it's just kind of, here's the new adventure, and we don't really know too much about Ethan. Uh, but since Macquarie has taken over, there's been some nice connective tissue. Um, yeah, I'll just echo what you said. Yeah, Macquarie was the
2: first like director to be like,
1: let's give him a character arc or something,
2: <laughs> as opposed <laughs> to just throwing Tom Cruise another adventure.
0: <laughs> I think you need that for, for a character that somebody like Tom Cruise is playing, because, you know, he is charming, and he is... Um, putting in a a human performance despite his superhuman Mm -hmm. um, feats. And you want to root for the character and know what his motivation is and what his backstory is. So, yeah, I think that makes uh, these last few movies a lot better than than maybe the first three.
1: And it also shows that Tom Cruise is still a great actor. You know, he's not just the guy who he's not just a daredevil. He doesn't just have a death wish. He still has this ability, um, so we'll see if he pays that off. Maybe in future Mission Impossible movies or other movies. Um, yeah, we'll come back to Mission For a Impossible. Seventy-year-old Tom Cruise in the drama. <laughs> yeah, we'll. I, I I'm very curious to see how his late late career is going to be because this is already late career Tom Cruise, but he's still acting like a young man action star. But he's like yeah, it doesn't five. feel like it, but it is. Yeah. We'll come back to Mission Impossible towards the end to get a little bit more deep into it. But let's get into our last main movie, Oppenheimer, directed by Christopher Nolan. The story of American scientist J. Robert Oppenheimer and his role in the development of the atomic bomb. Uh, There's a nice, clear synopsis from IMDb, thank you. Uh, Jeffrey, what did you think of Oppenheimer?
2: (laughs) I only saw Oppenheimer once, and it's definitely not enough to really take in that movie. Mm um i'm going to go right now with i loved it um but i i still feel like i'm not really able to speak very well to the scope of it without seeing it again
0: yeah i'm gonna totally agree with jeffy there i loved it um yeah that second viewing is i, I just saw it again a couple of days ago and yeah this, the second viewing sort of brings everything that's going on to it like fully into form and sort of solidified yeah, my, my love for it.
1: So Definitely. I'm going to be in the same place as you, Jacob, that I saw it a second time. And like you said, it solidified what I already knew that I loved about it because I was already unloved it after the first time I saw it. Um, I went back for IMAX a second time. I actually got to see this with uh, two Sif writers, Shane and Foster, and IMAX 70mm, and that was awesome. Um, I went back the second time to see it in Laser... Uh, that was awesome as well. Um, so awesome to a certain extent, because at the same time Oppenheimer is probably the most harrowing mainstream movie that we're going to get this year. Um, the most It's filled with the most existential dread, cynicism towards the system, towards the people who perpetuate it, uh, towards just singular people in general. There's a lot of darkness beneath the surface and on the surface, obviously, of, of Oppenheimer. But that's exactly what makes it so good. I honestly didn't really think that Nolan had this in him just because maybe since The Prestige, he has kind of opted to go for visual spectacle in all of his movies. Um, and Oppenheimer has, you know, there's a atomic bomb de- detonation scene but the point of the movie isn't the visual spectacle. It's like the historical spe- uh, spectacle and what it means in the grand scheme of everything in our world. Um, and he pulls it off better than I would have expected. It felt very,
2: um, I don't know, the, the even though it was like three hours long, it, it almost felt paced like, uh, like a superhero movie or a sci-fi movie. Just like, it wasn't like a really typical, boring, in my opinion, boring biopic. like, The way that he was able to kind of tie everything together and then uh, what people have been calling a temporal pincher movement (laughs) with the story, uh, I thought was kind of genius. Like I just love how it starts off. You don't really know what's going on. And then as it unfolds, you get more and more of the picture and it's, it's a very smart way to do a a biopic. And I don't think anyone's really done one in a style before.
0: Yeah. You know, I, I didn't think about it like that, but that's a good point. I mean, uh, Nolan did a perfect job of like encapsulating what Oppenheimer was feeling, but also the energy of that moment, the energy of the, leading up to the Manhattan Project, and all the the different factors that sort of um, formed to what Oppenheimer was feeling and how he got to that point. So um, yeah, I thought it was brilliant.
1: The way that it's paced is like a typical Nolan exposition scene, but for three hours instead of for 10 minutes. You know, he has all of those scenes in like his Batman movies and in Inception and Interstellar where characters are talking about the exposition of the story and he's cutting between them, walking and talking in so many different places. That's what happens here in Oppenheimer, but for three hours and he uses his dry wit that he has in all of his movies also... Um, and his very specifically paced and stylized dialogue um, to bring out character and to bring out story, and it's and it's done really effectively in my mind um, because so much of it is like almost like the social network, and it's just hearings um, as ways to tell the bigger yeah. story. He's not Aaron Sorkin, but his dialogue still has a sort of music and a sort of flow to it. And yeah, you never really notice it on the same scale that you do here because he's so often preoccupied with his visual scale, but here he has this character scale and this dialogue scale. And, um, it brings out a whole other side of Nolan that we're not necessarily used to seeing. I mean, yeah, the, the really cool thing about
0: that is the visual scale didn't really, um, lack it all just you know it's almost like you're hitting every single cylinder with that movie you know just to think of like them actually creating a version of you know a fictional version of the trinity test and you know and just the simple fact that there's no computer graphic shots in this movie at all uh to do all of that and to what you were saying of like the characters the dialogue the editing, and just all that put together perfectly. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. For my money, it might be his best movie because he was able to achieve all of that and, like, nothing's lacking.
2: It's amazing how many characters he was able to handle. Like, it's... Mm-hmm. This, is, this cast is humongous. <laughs> and, you know, not everybody really gets to shine. I mean, you can't have everybody be important, but even the littlest characters are played by
1: great actors, so the whole cast is really pulling their egg game, in. Right, at the end of the day, it's still Oppenheimer, a biopic about Oppenheimer. So that's why he Oppenheimer himself mm-hmm. is the main focus, but you're right, anyone... Like, for any little bit part, it's almost like a Wes Anderson movie, where it's just like, yeah, sure, I'll go work with Nolan. I'd make probably less than what these actors would normally make just to go give a great couple-scene performance. Like, Rami Malek... Mm-hmm. Uh, he's That's in exactly like I was four scenes of. and his Literally first couple of scenes he doesn't even have any dialogue. Yeah.
0: He has one scene where he talks. Yeah, is <laughs> one monologue, basically. Right. Not even. Somebody like Josh Peck, who is very <laughs> famous and maybe says three things, but also, mm-hmm. um, you know, plays a really important role in the actual Trinity test. And yeah, I thought everybody involved here was doing a great job like Josh Hartnett coming out of nowhere, and 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 uh, doing great work. Like that was so cool. Yeah. Was one of the guys? Um, Nat, uh, Nate Wolf? Is that? Am I right? Or Nat Wolf? I think
1: it was Alex Wolf. Alex Wolf. Wolf. Alex Wolf. Okay, yes. I knew it was. Was it Alex? I don't know what the difference.
0: Uh, the second I time I watched stuff that, I was like, oh, "There's so many recognizable faces too." Um, right. Between him and Josh Peck and yeah. somebody like. Um, I can't remember his name, but he's is, uh, another young yeah. actor. Um,
1: Jack Quaid. yeah. Jack Quaid, oh, yeah. Aaron White. Yeah.
2: Jack Quaid of the Bongos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what's funny? I don't know what that character actually did. <laughs> he just played Bongos.
0: That character, are you talking about the Old Aaron White character? He didn't even have a name. He's just credited as, like, Centidate, I think.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you meant the Jack Quaid meant- character, right?
2: Oh, the jet. Ja- yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. What, I don't know what he did. I just saw he bungles in like two scenes. So I was like, I guess it's his. He's he's the music <laughs> supervisor for the <laughs> music <community laughs> experiment. I don't know.
0: Um, but yeah, I was gonna say I uh, I thought it was funny. At one point, I saw the Nichols character, and I was like, in the middle of the movie, and I had this thought of like one of one of these people is Alden Ehrenreich, and I'm not sure who. So I I was, but then I forgot that Dane DeHaan even existed. He plays Nichols, but um. Dane
1: DeHaan too. Right. Yeah.
0: And him too. Wow.
1: We could just sit here and list list the whole cast and be like, like, wow.
2: I could go on for an hour about that. (laughs) I haven't seen uh, Dane DeHaan in a very long time in anything. So it took me a minute to watch this movie. I was like. I know that face. <laughs> like, right. like all the other ones I, I recognized pretty, pretty instantly. But he was like, I, I, was staring, I felt like I was, every scene he was in, I was staring at him for like the whole time being like, who is that? And it finally clicked.
1: And he's really good. Like that one scene uh, where he gives Oppenheimer the security clearance. He's mm. really menacing, really intimidating, even though he's just a military bureaucrat, basically. Uh, and he's just sitting at a desk. Yeah. Yeah. You hate him just from that.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, they set that up so well because he's like putting on that almost um, antagonizing persona. And then there's a reveal there that, um, yeah, kind of changes things for that character. So I thought it was interesting. Um, but I mean, also, if we want to talk about the female performances that maybe mm-hmm. weren't written quite as well. Um, you know, with Emily Blunt and uh, Florence Pugh, I thought they were both fantastic with, with the wor- uh, work they were given. You know? Um, and yeah. obviously, the Florence Pugh character is important to the evolution of what Oppenheimer becomes, but um, I I thought that uh, role in particular was kind of lacking. For, for an actress. Thankless. So, thankless. Yeah. Yeah. For yeah, for somebody so talented as
1: Florence Pugh, I have conflicting feelings about it, um, because I think the two most cutting lines in the in the movie, one is from Florence Pugh and the other one is from Emily Blunt, and I think uh, those are the most important to understanding Oppenheimer's character. One is from Florence Pugh where she says, "You want people to think you're more complicated than you actually are." I noticed that the second time mm-hmm. around, and I think that's an awesome yeah. line. Uh, and she delivers it in that incredibly awkward <laughs> sex scene where he says the I become death line. Um, and I'm not going to say the Emily Blunt line because she says it towards, that's like one of the last lines of the entire movie. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that is the mm-hmm. real killer line. Like, you, it, the Florence Pugh one plans to seed, at least for me, and then the Emily Blunt one, however, I want to continue that metaphor. Uh, picks up whatever that seed grew anyway uh, and she finishes off (laughs) it's really cutting and it's really important Um, because at the end of the day what really makes me love the movie is the ideas that it communicates Um, and if it didn't communicate those ideas especially through those two characters who Oppenheimer disregards basically in favor of his own self-interest um i don't think it would be nearly as effective as it is i think i've 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 only like read up
2: on the you know act versus fiction and all this very like not very in a not very detailed way but i have heard some complaints about the portrayal of his wife being like oh well these this characters just kind of here to like be a nag and she has no positive qualities and uh after reading a little bit, I feel like Nolan made the wife look better because he at least gave her some lines that were very cutting and biting and important. Having read some of the uh, biography of how that marriage went, I was like, look, <laughs> I really think that they all did the best they could. I love Emily Blunt's performance, too. Mm-hmm. like, it was I thought it was pretty good. Especially, I think, I think they did the best they could with that character. Yes. Yeah, that scene was amazing.
1: We've gone this whole conversation without mentioning the names Robert Downey Jr. and Matt Damon, too. Oh, yeah. Who are both also great. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Robert Downey Jr. in particular, I think that that brings home everything that I think the movie is trying to do. Like I mentioned those lines from Blunt and Pew, but I think his character, especially in that third hour, uh, it's important to inform the entire thesis of the movie that it's more than just that Oppenheimer ruined the future of the world, but like men who are only out for petty grievances did that also. Yeah.
2: He gave people like that the tool to end the world, basically. That's right. How I, saw it. I think Robert Downey Jr. for sure is going to get a Oscar nom for this. I really want Matt Damon to get an Oscar nomination. I don't think he will, but I, I want him to so bad. <laughs> I thought it was great.
0: And yeah, it's really cool to see Matt Damon and Downey in particular, And these uh, stages in their careers, you know, because obviously Downey's coming off Mm -hmm. of the whole Marvel thing. And this really isn't this is the first um, serious performance he's had in a long time Uh, and like completely, you know, down the barrel serious. And uh, yeah, old man Damon is here, you know, he's here to stay. (laughs) And I want to see him do more of those like straight man parts and just kind of dig into the really dramatic stuff more. But yeah, I agree with Jeffrey like that that was Oscar worthy from, from Downey for sure. He's he's um I think a lot for a best supporting actor nom. And uh yeah, like you said Robert is just really meaningful to what uh, Nolan's trying to say about um not just Oppenheimer's uh impact on the world, but everybody, you know, sort of involved in that circle and how little things like that can really change the course of history.
1: Nolan's repeated a couple times like in interviews that he thinks Oppenheimer is the most important person in human history. Um, And I think he argues that point effectively (laughs) in the movie, at least just especially with those final shots. I don't know if you could have argued that any more effectively. Oh, that is Mm -hmm. chilling. That ending is, especially
0: when there's, you know, there's a moment in the film where we think one thing happens and then it's like, Completely turned on its head and bring that all together. I was in shock the first time I saw that. You know, just like, yeah, such a brilliant ending.
2: Having having Einstein in there was kind of like one of the the main kind of like conceits of the movie because he was he was involved in this, but nowhere near as much as they had him in the movie. But I was like, I don't know, it's cool. It- I felt like we need somebody that everybody knows to tie us together. Why don't I yeah. have it be Einstein? A lot of his part in this movie is completely made up, but it's like, cool. Einstein. Everybody likes Einstein.
1: He's pretty goofy, too. <laughs> like He's introduced with his yeah. hat flying off while he's looking at the lake or at the pond. I just think that the way he plays his hat flying off is really funny. Um, and then later on, a car drives away and there's an Einstein jump scare <laughs> behind the car. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It was yeah, it's like, where did he come from?
2: <laughs> he was there.
1: You're just walking the whole time at the perfect pace. Yeah. And he was also the actor who plays the guy in the pit prison in Dark Knight Rises, which I've seen Dark Knight Rises so many times wow. that I've I've internalized his specific voice and accent that I was like, halfway through the movie, I was like, is Einstein the guy who fixed Batman's back?
0: Yeah, my I friend who I saw this with pointed that out to me. Oh. And I was like, "That man! I guess I have not seen Dark Knight Rises in a while, but never would have even thought that."
2: Yeah, same. I
1: didn't know that. Oh, anywhere else you guys want to go with the Oppenheimer talk?
0: And the only thing I would say is, um, see it in the theater if you can. Like, mm-hmm. this yeah. is one of the. Yeah. I know Nolan preaches about this, and it can come off as pretentious sometimes, but if nothing else, for the sound. The sound design yeah. in this movie, mm-hmm. which obviously Nolan is fantastic at, is so, so good. And if you haven't seen it, you know, not all of us can go to New York City and see the 70 millimeter uh, IMAX expert, <laughs> Robert. But um, yeah, you can see it at the theater if you can. <laughs> yeah. I highly recommend it.
1: I'm glad you brought up the sound because the score is also great. Ludwig Goranson, like, come on.
0: Especially in the third hour. When they were cutting between those mm-hmm. hearings, and you don't even notice the score at at, at some point, it's but it's you, but you would notice if it if it wasn't there because it's just driving right. the drama and like yeah. accenting the dialogue so perfectly. And I mean, talk about edge of my seat! Like seeing that all sort of evolve together and putting the different pieces while that score is going on is like, yeah, it's it's Sorkin esque. Mm-hmm. You mentioned him earlier, um, but uh, yeah, it's it's a really important part of the movie. Yeah, I think Ludwig's
2: proven that he can do anything musically. Like it's, it's crazy yeah. how much stuff he's had a part in, and it all sounds so different. I mean, this like I knew it was him, but I think if I didn't know it was him, I would just assume that Nolan was using Hans Zimmer again. I'd be like, oh, Hans Zimmer is finally like not phoning it in for a second. But no, it's, uh, Ludwig being great.
1: The fact that he started on like New Girl and Community, and went on to create and Black yeah. Panther and Nolan movies, just this crazy Matters composer story. Yeah. No.
0: Oh yeah, I think this movie in particular is going to help his career even more, and and yeah, get him get him a lot of work. I for- I'd forgotten he had done Black Panther until I looked it up, uh, the yeah. first time I saw it, and uh, I mean, talk about two different scores too. Like this guy has rage,
1: As opposed to Hans Zimmer who copy and pastes himself. You get something different with Ludwig every time. Um, The last thing I want to mention is the concept of uh, theory and doing something practically, which is pervasive throughout the entire movie Um, that Oppenheimer, the character can't move past theory and That is why, or that's a big part of why the explosion of the bomb has such a big impact on him because this whole time he's just working out the theory and putting together the bomb, and then all of a sudden it has a tangible impact. Um, seeing how that storyline plays all the way through, and then by the end, it's almost turning into a horror movie. Um, the scene in the gym is just it's why I call it harrowing because the closing shots are make you sick to your stomach, but there's nothing more harrowing than that gym scene with just everything that Nolan uses, whether it's the sound design, the cinematography, you know um, the lighting
0: that was the most impactful scene for me like, it, even, it's funny that that comes after mm-hmm. the Trinity test because of the sound design of that and the, uh, just everything going yeah. on with that is so great, but yeah just especially when it, it completely cuts out in that gym mm-hmm. scene and just the way he does that, I was mm-hmm. like that really shook me.
2: Yeah. I really like the, 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 how he's kind of able to show moral dis like dissonance that Oppenheimer had in that moment through, you know, kind of using horror tropes instead of just having like a, a scene where it's like, oh, God, what have I done? It's like, you know, like a very visceral, right. like what are we actually cheering for right now? <laughs> like what are we so happy about?
1: Yeah, right. it was pretty good. The second time I saw this <laughs> – this is just a quick little anecdote. I was seated behind an older woman uh, who obviously didn't go to the movies very often. And uh, just based on some of the conversations I was overhearing her having before the movie started. And since i had seen it before, I was ready for when the sound comes in for the Trinity test. And the theater I saw it in also had very little legroom. When the sound comes in in the Trinity test, when the explosion happens, she jumped so badly in her seat, leaned back and smacked me in the knees. Oh no. And, it honestly kind of enhanced the experience for me. Um, you have your own
0: little explosion right there. In the right.
1: I have my own little explosion. So I just needed to share that story on the record somewhere. Um, <laughs> That's
0: fantastic. Let's
1: move, <laughs> let's move on to our wild cards before we, before we circle back around to Mission Impossible one more time. Do either of you guys have wild, wild cards? Anything you wanted to bring up from July?
0: I would mention a TV show instead of a movie, if that's not cheating. Go for it. I just wanted to quickly shout out Season 5 of What We Do in the Shadows. Premiered uh, July 13th uh, with with two new episodes, and then uh, it's been airing for the last two weeks. Um, this show is fantastic, if you haven't seen it already. Uh, based on the Taika Waititi movie from 2016, uh, you know, a group of vampires living in Staten Island. What more do you need? Uh it's it's such a funny show. This season in particular, I think has been one of their best. Um, because they've taken the characters on a lot of into a lot of different places. Um, you know, as as far as like even their form or um where they are in their lives emotionally. Um but this is kind of a a full circle moment, I think, for the um specifically Guillermo who's sort of the main character of the series and mm-hmm. Um, I think they're, they're probably, you know, maybe got, I'd say they have two, three more seasons in them, those story-wise, and they're maybe starting to slowly land the plane, but, um, yeah, I really, really enjoyed the show. It's a lot of fun, if you haven't seen it. Um, it's on Hulu, I think it airs, like, Thursday at 10 on FX, um, and there's Mm -hmm. still five, six seasons left in the, episodes left in the season to air, so... Yeah, check that out if you haven't seen it.
1: I haven't started season five yet, but I'm excited to do so. Jeffrey, is there anything you wanted to add? They clone Tyrone. Ooh. Ah, uh, yeah. Movie.
2: Please watch it. It's great. It's really, really good.
1: <laughs> that one I also have to get to. Uh, it was supposed to come out, like, last oh, Christmas. You have to. Really? I'm, I'm definitely going to. Yeah, I initially gave the review to Chantel back in like last December. And then she reached out and she's like, hey, can I still uh, <laughs> review that? I was like, oh yeah, for sure. It's, I don't know why it got pushed back so far, but I'm looking forward to getting to it. Uh, my wild card quickly is Theater Camp. There's another straight up comedy that I'm glad that we, or that I'm glad that I got to see. Uh, it's a really funny movie about an in-group, which is basically theater ge- geeks. Um, but you don't have to be, a part of that in-group to get or appreciate the movie, because I know that I'm, I've never been a theater person, but I really was drawn in by the humanity of the movie uh, and its wholesomeness. So yeah, it's just about finding a community. It's about finding people who are similar to you, even when you feel like an outcast. Uh, ben Platt, who I'd only seen in the Dear Evan Hansen movie, he and I which I hated. I hated him in that movie, and I hated the movie. Ooh, that's so, a horrible
2: representation.
1: Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh he's hilarious in this. He's great. He's like I was shocked at how good he is in theater camp. And Molly Gordon, she co-directs the movie and co stars in it. She's also great. Uh, I'm excited that she's really starting to take off. And Noah Galvin, who you might know from Book Smart, he's one of the uh, one of the guys who like puts on the Night of Mystery or whatever at the one house. Um, he's in this also, and he's absolutely hilarious. He's my favorite part of Smart and he's one of my favorite parts of this movie, too. So yeah, Theater Camp, if and when it comes near you or if and when it comes to streaming, definitely check that out. And before we get back to Mission Impossible, let's get to each, each of our favorite movies of the year so far. I'll start with this. I said last month that my favorite movie is Asteroid City. And that is still the case for me. Oppenheimer is a close second, but I got to stick with Asteroid City. Uh, Jacob, what's your favorite movie of the year so far?
0: I'm going to have to go with uh, Across the Spider-Verse Part 1 by a mile. That movie... There's been a lot of great movies that have come out this year. Um, But uh, I like Asteroid City a lot too. But um, yeah, Across the Spider-Verse just hit every single point for me. Like... And I I want to say Oppenheimer because I liked it a lot. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, Across the Spider-Verse is just maybe like the coolest movie I've ever seen.
2: Yeah, I think Oppenheimer is probably the best movie I've seen this year. But I'm going to have to go with Jacob Choice and say Across the Spider-Verse is still my favorite. That's an experience that felt special and, and more special than anything uh, that I've seen so far. In a year that's had so many good movies so far. So yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: I think that's a good segue into our spoiler talk for Mission Impossible, which I'll emphasize again. We are going to fully spoil Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Um, yeah, final spoiler warning right now. That's a good segue into it because I, I wanted to ask you guys, before we get to the Ilsa stuff, what you guys thought about it as a Part 1. Um, this one specifically has it in the title, unlike <laughs> Across the Spider-Verse. Uh, yeah. You don't necessarily have to compare it to Spider-Verse, but like, what were your thoughts on how it pulls off its part oneness?
2: Uh, I thought it felt like an actual movie. It was bold to me.
0: That's what I was going to say. Like, They tied it together well enough to put us in a certain point. Like, okay, we know where the crucifix key <laughs> is, uh, whatever it's called, and we know what's going to happen next. There's some resolution with the villain. Yeah, I thought it was it, I thought they did the part one thing
2: better than Spider-Verse for example.
1: I agree with both yeah. of you. I guys. just just in terms of
2: where they yeah. left it and when they left it off. Yeah.
1: Right, because the whole movie is about finding both pieces of the key and then they find both pieces of the key and they're like, "All right, there's the end." Now the next movie is going to be about opening the safe for whatever they're going to do. So yeah, I agree that it has a much cleaner <laughs> ending. And you can hear my fuller thoughts on the Across the Spider-Verse ending if you listen to last month's spoiler chat. So, Jacob, go for it. What what exactly did you want to say about Ilsa?
0: So, yeah, uh, this is the big spoiler, obviously. She dies in this movie. And yeah. um, I just wasn't satisfied with how that ended, rounded out, like, in conjunction with her arc in uh, Rogue Nation and Fallout, you know, like... Mm -hmm. It almost, like, her storyline was messy to begin with, you know, like, she's uh, British intelligence, but she, you know, also, like, does a lot of evil things in the name of, you know, just trying to get back to her original post, and, like, they, in all three of those movies, I feel like they don't give enough clarification to where her and Ethan really stand, and then... Maybe they're yeah. trying to force some dynamic, force a relationship in this movie. And it just doesn't feel earned. Especially that, that final yeah. you know, that scene. you know, it's just like it it exists because Ethan Hunt has this history with women almost and they just wanted to put something like that in there.
2: Yeah, it was weird in this movie. They they, they treated them like it felt like they were a, if you felt like watching this movie that if you went back and watched the previous movies that they were for sure a couple and they weren't. And so it was kind of weird for me to, to see in this movie how they kind of like cuddled up together as if that had established like this is like a real relationship. And I'm like, not really, but okay. And uh, yeah, I think the way that she died was insane, especially because they already had a fake out death for her in the beginning of the movie. So I was yeah. like, why are we <laughs> why did we do that like i don't know it just it just felt lame it kind of felt like the only reason they killed her is like to make room quote-unquote for Haley atwell's character and i was like you can't have oh definitely. more than one woman in a mission impossible movie like what <laughs> what's the problem like we have to only have like we have to get rid of one to put in the other it doesn't make any sense but
1: yeah. i had similar thoughts uh to that last point um Though I do think that at the end of Fallout, I think the implication is supposed to be that Ethan is officially moved on from Michelle Monahan. I don't remember her character's name, but he's officially moved on from her and kind of now has permission or the ability to, you know, become an official thing with Ilsa. So I kind of got that and that made sense to me and it worked for me. But yeah Her death to me was just more affecting than it was just then I, then it did have me thinking about the things that you guys are saying, because not often besides Ethan, Benji and Luther are there characters who last more than a couple mission impossible movies. So now that she's here in her third movie, like if Ethan or or if uh, Benji or Luther had died, it would have, I would have been a wreck. Oh yeah. So now that she's here in her third movie, I'm like starting to feel attached. I'm like, all right, she's part of the team. She's here going forward. Um, And it does feel weird that they feel like Haley Atwell and Rebecca Ferguson are almost redundant when that's not the case at all. Because part of what I liked about the movie is Haley Atwell, like at the end, he asks her, are you okay? And she says, no. How many times do we get that in a Mission Impossible movie? I think that's an interesting character that is very different than Rebecca Ferguson or than Ilsa. So as I've thought about it, I've kind of come to what you guys are saying. Um, But my first reaction was just being like, man, I love the character of Ilsa. I wish she didn't die.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing for me is she's a really cool character and Mm -hmm. had a lot of great moments and especially Rogue Nation and Fallout. And it's like, maybe, you know, her death was just so forced to me just to that it like, it almost felt like you're short, changing that character as a whole yeah um but that's really the only negative I had
2: yeah it her death felt very uh I don't know if unceremonious is the right word but it just it just felt, it just felt really flat to me I mean I, I really like that character and to have her die just like in the random street fight with a knife I just felt like eh, I would have preferred something a little bit more dramatic or something a little bit more meaning than just hey Ethan one of your girlfriends is now dead
1: well, I also think it is trying to show the, the true threat of Gabriel. You know, because she tries mm-hmm. to do her takedown thing where she, like, gets on her opponent's shoulders, but he blocks that or throws her off both times. Um, so it's just like, mm-hmm. hey, this guy's not messing around. He's the real deal. Like I said, to me, in the moment, it really works. It didn't feel as unceremonious. It was just more affecting. To me, what's more unceremonious is that it's just, like, the next scene... They're talking about her, and then it's just as if she's not a character, or she was never a character the rest of the movie. Yeah. Um, they yeah. kind of just disregard everything she was and what her importance was. Yeah, he, they moved on really quick.
0: Yeah, it didn't feel like Ethan was even using her as motivation, so to speak. Like Maybe yeah. his ultimate motivation is saving the world, but it, it did almost feel like, okay, we got a new girl now. Haley Atwell is going to be in part two. Let's let let's throw a little Vanessa Kirby in there.
2: Yeah, I was going to say,
1: by the way, loved her. Loved her. She
0: was fantastic. Oh, oh, yeah.
1: She wasn't given much in Fallout. She's just kind of stoic. But in this one, she's given a lot more to do, and I think she's great. Yeah. All right. I think that'll probably wrap it up. Uh, July was probably the best single month for movies of the year so far, and I'm glad that the three of us got to talk about it. This was a fun conversation. Um, Jacob and Jeffrey, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, just a quick reminder that the Sifpop Writers Room is part of the Studio DNA network. You can check out other great shows at StudioDNA.media. If you're interested in writing for Sifpop.com or if you want to get in contact with us, then you can email us at writersroom at Sifpop.com. You can also join me next month as I talk with Sifpop writers John and Nick to discuss some of the biggest movies of August. So until next time, We have to get back to the writer's room.